Numbering in the music of the classical era can be a tricky business. In the late 18th and early 19th century, symphonies, string quartets or sonatas often appeared in an order convenient to the publisher. For example, if you were bringing out a set of six string quartets, it made sense if you put the best one first, because that's the one that buyers would look at first. But there's no confusion with regard to Haydn's Symphony Number no. 104. This really is the last of Haydn's 104 officially recognised symphonies. Haydn, who was one of the more honest of composers anyway, noted it as the twelfth I have composed in England. That's towards the end of the second of two hugely successful visits he made to this country in 1794-5. It's the last of the symphonies written for the leading orchestral impresario, Johann Peter Salomon. He was commercially shrewd, as well as a fine musician, and he knew that with Haydn he'd found a veritable gold mine. All of these twelve English symphonies were written for Salomon's London concerts. Several were probably written, or at least conceived, in London. So why did only one of them come to be known as THE London? Well, there have been some ingenious suggestions. The little figure that begins the finale theme, for instance, just three notes turning down, has been compared to London's famously rich and varied street sellers' cries, lavender, lavender for one, or hot cross buns, hot cross buns. It could be either, though I think I favour lavender. It's a nice story. Unfortunately, Haydn's only written remark about London's musical street life is not outstandingly complimentary. It occurs in a letter home he wrote during his first visit. I wished I could fly for a time to Vienna to have more quiet in which to work, for the noise that the common people make as they sell their wares in the street is intolerable. Well, perhaps this was the cry of a harassed, exasperated composer up against a deadline. Perhaps by 1795 Haydn had come to love the 18th century equivalent of advertisement jingles as much as he clearly loved the folk music of his homeland. Or perhaps not. But the connection between this last of Haydn's symphonies and the city, which already by the late 18th century was huge for its time and teeming with vastly contrasting life, Maybe it's not so tenuous after all. Let's just look at the city as it was seen by two of Haydn's contemporaries. First of all, there's that famous remark of Dr Johnson. When a man is tired of London, he is tired of life, for there is in London all that life can afford. Interesting to compare that with its extreme opposite in a poem by William Blake from the Songs of Experience, who, wandering around the streets of London, found in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. For Blake, London was a city of mind-forged manacles. We find a similar kind of extreme contrast at the beginning of Haydn's 104th Symphony. It begins with a grand call to attention, a fanfare, suitable music for a great city, to borrow a title from Aaron Copeland. That fanfare is just two notes, D and A. It could be either D major or minor. 
and the audience at the first performance had no doubt read that this was a symphony in D major. So what follows is a bit of a surprise, possibly an unsettling one. After that grand fanfare, we have tense, nervous, even anguished harmonies and sighing figures on the strings, and there's a deliciously telling touch of colour, a bassoon in the middle of the harmonic texture in its most plaintive register. If this is London, it is much closer to Blake's nightmare vision of alienation than Dr Johnson's ringing affirmation of vitality and variety. The slow introduction ends with a pause. There's no transition. Then comes complete change. Now it seems we have the Johnsonian view of London, teeming, bustling, richly diverse life. Yet it's very striking how this follows, or rather doesn't quite follow, from that very dark, slow introduction. 
Quite often in his later symphonies, Haydn liked to set up a portentous mood and then deflate it deliciously in the main allegro. Take the symphony number 98, composed during Haydn's first London visit. It begins with a quite serious-sounding slow introduction in B-flat minor. Haydn whips off the tragic mask and reveals a broad comedic grin underneath. It's exactly the same figure, but now it dances forward in a bright major key allegro. In retrospect, this sudden change makes the seriousness of the introduction seem only mock-serious. Imagine Papa Haydn stalking into the children's bedroom with a sheet over his head, but at the first sign the children are beginning to think it might be a ghost, he whips the sheet off. It's only me. Symphony number 104 is very different. That slow introduction is really serious in tone. It wouldn't be out of place at all in Haydn's seven last words of our Saviour on the cross or in the awestruck representation of chaos from his creation. There's no equivalent of whipping off the sheet. In any case, the beginning of the Allegro, though it's major key and brighter, does not bring an immediate twist to a deflating comic mood. And that extreme contrast presented by the slow introduction and the main Allegro is not simply forgotten after the contrast of the first movement. Haydn's second movement, it's not really a slow movement, but it's slower. It begins with one of those contented-sounding walking tunes to which Haydn was especially partial.
After this, you might expect a set of variations, with perhaps a slightly darker toned minore minor variation for contrast, as in several of Haydn's earlier slow-ish movements. But no, immediately after that, the tune turns plaintive and doubtful, and we've hardly gone four bars before there's a complete disruption. Again, we have one of those disconcerting silences. Then the walking tune attempts to collect itself. This time, though, it only lasts three bars. And eventually we're back into the carefree walking tune, as though nothing had happened. Well, not quite as though nothing had happened. Do you remember a strange little dissonant inflection in the tune? You probably hardly registered it when we first heard it. Now, after those big dislocating changes and unsettling minor key outbursts that we've just heard, this seems to register a memory of something slightly darker. Something extraordinary is happening here. We sensed the enormous emotional contrast in the first movement, rather like two states of being, two radically different takes on the same city. Dr. Johnson meets, or rather doesn't meet, William Blake. But the consequences of this extreme opposition are only being fully explored, worked out on a large scale, in the second movement, the Andante. Now, in classical-era symphonies, the second movement usually brings light relief. The real dramatic weight is in the first movement. But Haydn seems to be displacing the dramatic weight away from the first movement, impressive though it is, to the second movement. It doesn't end with the contrast we've just heard. It's continuous throughout the movement. As the walking tune continues, a sudden startling tutti interposes itself. It's an outburst of the kind you'd expect more from Beethoven.
comes the most extraordinary protracted questioning passage in the whole symphony. Haydn interrogates the theme and with it the whole of this surprisingly eventful movement in order to achieve some sort of perspective. First, the strings wander in new, less comfortable harmonic directions. strong memories there of that plaintive sighing figure from the first movement's slow introduction. So now the thematic drama enhances this sense of looking back to the symphony's original unsettling slow introduction. As for my remarks about the interrogating, questioning nature of this section, that's exactly how the woodwind sound in the passage that follows. Something rather striking has happened here harmonically. We've arrived at the key of F-sharp, which is very distant harmonically from the movement's home key of G. To get back from that to the home key and to the original contented walking tune requires a moment of concentrated thought from the strings and bassoons, like solving a difficult crossword clue. For just a moment, you can almost hear Haydn's frown of concentration. So we've had a remarkably event-rich and intellectually sophisticated slow movement, and after a seemingly innocent beginning. What's more, it seems to be working out dramatic tensions sounded but not resolved in the first movement. Now Beethoven is often said to have begun the shift in dramatic weight of the symphony away from the first movement to the finale. But here, Haydn is showing, five years before Beethoven's first symphony, that he's ahead of the game. The last two movements of the symphony number 104 are lighter, yet still there are after-reverberations of the serious business of the first and second movement. The trio of the minuet, for instance, lurches from the D major home key to a more shadowy B-flat. To get back requires another of those forehead-wrinkling moments encountered in the second movement.
We started this look at Haydn's last symphony with a metaphor taken from that title, London. It seemed useful enough at the start, or maybe it's now begun to outlive its usefulness. Yet if we take Dr Johnson's comment about London containing all that life can afford and extend it so that it includes the darker, more doubtful sides of life as envisioned by William Blake, it could still work very well as an image for Haydn's last and probably greatest symphony. There is so much in this work, such richness in contrast, like the teeming life of a great city. It's almost Shakespearean. It bears out a comment by a contemporary journalist, written in 1798. That's three years after Symphony No. 104 was premiered and apparently went straight into the repertoire. There is no one who can do it all, wrote this journalist, to joke and to terrify, to evoke laughter and profound sentiment, and all equally well, except Joseph Haydn. And, one might add, there's no symphony that does it all, and quite so well as Haydn's Symphony No. 104.